The intermediate line advises a language and concept warning for the entire show. Yeah, hi guys, Jason Bohr here. Um, a lot of people call me Netflix or Snorri Bori. Um, yeah, if you can't, if you don't see me on the flats, I'll be on the couch. Usually, listen to the Intermediate Line podcast. Now, let me hand it over to Chris Swilly Adams and Jeff Parrotfish Volta. Enjoy, guys. This episode of the Intermediate Line is brought to you by Manic Tackle Project, the only company who knows fly fishing as well as you do. And Beast Brushes, Australian-made brushes and dubbing, professionally graded natural materials, plus a full shop for all of your fly tying needs at beastbrushes.com. Mate, I hear you've had a quite an eventful week with people sending you uh, pictures of uh, confronting images. Yeah, <laughs> there's been a few um, a few confronting images. People sent through monkeys, man. They, I don't know what they're fucking expecting. Why would they do monkeys. that, mate? Well, I thought I'd, I'd put it all on the line. I, I felt I, you know, put my vulnerabilities out there last week, telling people I was scared of monkeys, and um, yeah, some some heartless fuckers sent me. Uh, um, monkeys in my messages. So I promise you, I'll edit. I'll, I'll edit that out of the show, mate. But we should get the show going anyway. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. Well, here we go, mate. I, I'm just going to hit record now. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Welcome back to the Intermediate Line for another week, folks. You're here with your guests, Josh Radloff and Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> Which one am I? <laughs> you're the Radloff, mate. Oh, well, clearly. Come on. Clearly, yeah. Obviously, you're Brad Pitt. I mean, clearly. He threw, he threw some shocking loops in there. <laughs> I, just, I was, <laughs> the I was thinking to myself, as I said that, I'm going, no, I'm just Radloff, <laughs> because I could have been hacking on Welty's loops. But, uh, <laughs> but on the idiot. outside. Idiot. Hey? Yeah, and, and Brad Pitt, well, you know, obviously, uh, he was so terrible that uh, Angelina Jolie sort of pissed him off, so... You know, it's uh, it's not all that great being Brad these days over here. Yeah. If I was Brad, you know what I'd say? Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that dude's having no trouble on Tinder. Oh, man. Can you, I mean, his track record's incredible. Jennifer Aniston, Angelina Jolie, both lovely, intelligent ladies. Great breakdown. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, man. Big week. What's been happening? Not much, mate. It's been off the back of um, lockdown, so nothing's been going on while lockdown's there. Oh, 
my trip to Hinchinbrook got cancelled too. So it's um, lockdown affected, uh, COVID affected. So yeah, there we go. That's for those who are playing along, not happening. Cancelled or postponed, man? No, no, cancelled, mate. Right, okay. Yep. It's, um, yeah, so yeah, there you go. Anyway, that's how my week went, mate. Yeah, I knew you were looking forward to that. Lots of preparation. I'm um, in the same boat as, as everyone else, mate, around Australia that's affected by COVID. So, you know, it's um, I can't really get out the world's smallest violin with it. It's just the way it is, mate. The way it is, mate. It's the way it is. I've got my health. I've got my family. Yeah. I've got my boat, which I should have put up the top of that list. But um, I can't really complain. <laughs> yeah. yeah hmm. that's, uh, that's, that's true. You've got yeah. your priorities and, you know, sometimes... Uh, that that annual trip or you know in your case it's been a while since you had a trip like that it, uh, it has been man yeah, yeah i used to do it all the time but it's been a long time it is what it is mate i'm not really um i, I am spewing over but i'm not really delving in i could have moved past it uh, 30 seconds ago and like in the name of that what's your week been like uh yeah it's it's been a busy week of work um obviously yeah. coming out of um, spreadsheets yeah, there's been a few spreadsheets actually um, yeah what's your favorite yeah. spreadsheet Ah, look, I've been I've been bouncing between numbers and Excel, and um, uh, I love the functionality of Excel, but the mm. usability of, of numbers is is fucking right up there for me, man. It's good. Do you ever use any of the the, fr- the free software programs for your spreadsheets, mate? Like Libra Libra Office, for example. No, I don't. Uh, there's a tip yeah. for people who don't want to pay for um, Microsoft Office, Libra Office, all the functionality, zero cost. There you go, man. What do you, what the are you life get? Of, a, of somebody who works in fly fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Is there plenty of What do you get? You get everything, man. What? You get the full enchilada. Yeah, right. Everything that Microsoft Office offers. God damn it, man. Say that three times. Everything Microsoft Office offers. Yeah. It's, a, it's a word. Weird tongue twister. Um, yeah, Libre Office. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. There you yeah. go. That's a gem I didn't expect to um to let out on the podcast tonight. You're full of surprises. I, I had no idea that you were that sort of, um, you know, amazing. In the yeah. outro, I'm going to drop some real fucking knowledge for you, mate. I'm going to tell you about a thesis <laughs> that I was involved in back in the uh, in the late '80s. <laughs> I'm I'm sure I find this very enlightening. Um, yeah, I, I just. I, I can't even begin to wonder what what the uh, this thesis was. You know, what was the topic? What even general area was it in? Was it? No, 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 I'm not even not even going to allude, mate. But it was in. We could call it marine science. Okay. Marine science. Correct. Yeah, right. For some mm-hmm. reason, I thought you're a engineering or math sort of guy. Maybe even you English, would. You, you know? would think so, mate. I do. I do often dress that way, and I do conduct myself in a quite a, a linear fashion. But you would be incorrect. No. Right, and for some reason, social sciences, maybe psychology. I know you're a, uh, a hobby anthropologist for sure. <laughs> <laughs> a great student of humanity, you are. Yeah, yeah, but I don't get out and about. Humanity comes to me these days. It's called Facebook. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know. Um, the magging podcast is taken off, but uh, you know everything's really sticking together there. Um, um, you know, what, what's that, mate? Oh, just playing the fucking can. 
corny music there. Fucking hell. <laughs> the mag podcast, everything sticking together. I love let's it. face it. At this point, for avid listeners to the meat line, are you surprised? Yeah. The answer no, is... No. Nah. Glittering and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. You got me out. <laughs> Hey, uh, speaking of you boys like in Mexico, yeah. um, <laughs> we got one of the great Mexicans on tonight, haven't we? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about a Senor Starling? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah Steve Starling. Yeah. yeah, we got a great Mexican on. Yeah, but um, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, to Australia. You really wouldn't put him in the in the bracket of um. Of a, of a New South Welshman, would you? You know, like, um, travelled all around the country, done a lot of fishing in a lot of lot of places, that's for sure. Oh, he has. He spent, what, three or four years living in Northern Territory too. Uh, I believe his wife's from up that way. I, I know he lives on the south coast of New South Wales at the moment, but, yeah, widely travelled throughout the top end over the years. Um, and the and bottom end. Bottom end. Like they call it Travel. the COVID belt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I would. I couldn't imagine there's too many places in Australia that he hasn't sort of fished, you know, general regions and that sort of thing, um, or techniques that he hasn't tried, you know, um, from game fishing, fly fishing, lure fishing, bait fishing, online um, fishing. He's pretty good at all of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, and you know, Steve probably doesn't need any introduction, but he's he's got a he's got a number of pages and um, and uh, uh, digital products. Um, to go Break along. them down, Bolts. What are they? Uh, well, we've got Starlow's Fishotopia. One. We've got uh, Steve Starling. I think it's Two. his Instagram page. Um, he's widely known for his uh, editorial and contributions to uh, print magazines like Modern Three. Fishing. Originally before that, Fishing World. Yep, four. Is that four? And then there was an uh, extensive amount of time uh, through um, Rex Hunt's Fishing World. Yep. Not even going to start breaking down. You could keep going all night with this, really, at the end of the day. He, he was a co-presenter on uh, the AFC Fishing Tour. Um, oh, that's right. He was, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Uh, he's, uh, I believe he's published quite regularly in AFN, um, you know, the Freshwater Fishing Magazine. Could be wrong. Yep. Um, he's written some books, a wide number of books, actually, a lot of how-tos. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's... He's been there and done that, man. He's it's a lot of achievements. He's a career fisherman. There you go. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a career fishing communicator is probably Correct. a good way to put it. And let's not forget uh, his work with Shimano. He's got a, a very well-known range of lures. Um, uh, you know, the Starlow Bushy Squidgy. Um, rods and reels made to his specs. Um, rods, actually. Sorry, I don't know. That. I'm not aware of any reels. Could be wrong. I've actually got a number of Starlow sticks and and that um, good value for money, and they certainly work. Yeah. How much is Starlow paying you again? I don't know, mate. Probably, well, officially none, but yeah. <laughs> Just compliments? He's a good dude, man. Yeah, I'm paying him compliments. Yeah, no, yeah. He's, I thought he'd be paying you compliments. Like, uh, oh, yeah. nice pelt, for example. <laughs> I'm not very hirsute. High sheen days. level. Yeah. Sorry, mate? I'm not very hirsute these days. Fancy word for hairy for you. You know, oh, that's the Yeah. Her suit. Just yeah. writing that down <laughs> for later. Uh, the pursuit of her suit. 
It's <laughs> going to be the title of my biography of Jeff Volta. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, is that the word for the week? Yeah, it could be. Let's let's run with that word for the week. That'd be a That's really cute. cool section each each week. Actually, what's your word for the week, Chris? And um, um, put you on the spot. Oh, yeah, my word for the week: um, photosynthesis. Okay, so what's the definition of photosynthesis, man? What's the what's the chemical reaction for that? Um, it's when well, I could tell you what it is. It's when plants trans. Um, convert sunlight into energy through photosynthesis <laughs> sort of i mean you, you got parts of it right yeah yeah through uh well they well i didn't want to break it down into, into chlorophyll and and working on with the phloem and xylem uh parts of the plant and things like that as well but i can if you want <laughs> it was part of my thesis yeah right okay but i thought you're in marine science rather than uh well you can have phloem and xylem in in some marine scenarios marine doesn't necessarily uh you know segregate itself completely to zooplankton mate you know yeah yeah well look you know uh, photosynthesis occurs in uh in marine algae too doesn't it it so, certainly does yeah uh like spirulina spirulina as well yeah. spirulina is like a you know, a, uh, a, an algae generally found around the Hawaiian Islands that can be used as a superfood for humans. <laughs> Listen to the knowledge flex from it. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you, mate, wait till you hear about my thesis in the end. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm mm. amazed. You didn't strike me as the kind of guy that would hang out in a health food shop. That's you know who know. does hang out in a health food shop? Who's he looks that? a bit dusty now. I put a photo of him up on the Intermediate Line page the other day. It's Josh Radloff. <laughs> he's a little bit he's a little bit dusty looking tricked ya that was actually a picture of a fly <laughs> it's an incredibly skilled uh, fly tie to, to to pull off such an amazing similarity an, an amazing similarity likeness. yeah it was incredible amazing. likeness it was yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was a good show with Pip last week I, I thoroughly enjoyed it I hope everyone else got got a lot out of it yeah yeah, well, yeah, I enjoyed it. We had, we had plenty of uh, positive feedback. And, uh, you know, thank you for those people who played along with it and um, and uh, sent your feedback in too. And, yeah, once again, thanks for those for those monkey taunts too. You know. <laughs> yeah. Playful primate um, SMSs. Um, you know, this is the second week in a row we've had like a, a serious Australian uh, fishing industry hitter. You know, really, in the day, you know, yeah. Pip is um, Pip's a an undersung hitter, and uh, you know, and Starlo's. How do I word this in a way that uh, is going to translate exactly how I want it to be? It could be he's in a market that could be a real hit and a miss. That could really that could really be a short burn for a lot of people. It's a, it's a real uh, testament to how skilled Starlo is at his chosen career, for how much longevity he's is extracted out of his industry. If you know what I mean, you know it's uh, there's been a lot of people that, that that come and go and 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 fly in, fly out, but even I would imagine that if you spoke to some of the some of the young fellas that are, you know, uh, much 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 our junior, like teenage and stuff like that, they probably heard of Starlo and follow yeah. Starlo um, with with a lot of uh, a lot of keenness, you know, because he, um, you know, we got part of the reason of having him on the show, which we'll point out to him as well, is that you know he, he sort of transcends. 
one or the other, if you know what I mean. Like, people following for the lures, people following for the even for the bait, you know, but people would follow also following for the fly fishing. He's in a very unique position like that. I mean, there's others in the country like that, but none as none as unique as what Starlo does, as far as being a um, a communicator and have been having been such one in uh, in such a high you know level of spotlight for so long. Oh, totally, mate. He's, a lot of lot of people who uh, you know a lot of anglers, full stop, are, are using uh, techniques that you know Starlo's either you know brought to Australia or uh, brought. You know, in from overseas. I'm just thinking right off the top of my head. Some of these things, like um, he had the 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 Starlo and Bushy's um, that bony brim. I think is it called a stiffy. Oh, the stiffy, yeah, uh, yeah. Bush stiffy, yeah. Yeah, that was sort of like a, one of the first Australian-made. You know, when you call it a swim bait stuff, style lure. You know, like that was was pretty cool. I remember um, Starlo probably it was I, a, I could, probably more of a stick wrong. bait, really. Well, yeah, like, maybe like. Like a big, like almost like a big vibe, like the toe point on the head, something. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, I remember one of his early articles regarding the head and Zara spook. You know, one of the oh yeah, walk the dog type lures. Yeah, and that was pre-internet. So, you know, a lot of, um, you know, we were relying on print media to to expose us to uh, new lures, new techniques, new tackle. You know, mm. um, so you know things like that. He he, you know, led the way. Um, uh, you know, soft plastics obviously is, you know, his name's synonymous with the squidgy brand through Shimano. It, yeah, he mm. uh, he's got his fingerprints over a, a lot of Australian fishing. That's for sure. Yeah, I guess if you you know you're one of our overseas listeners and listening to this and 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 you know you might be listening to it weekly. You might enjoy the show and you're like, well, I'll just give this a go. There's not too many. I guess you need to know to prelude uh, to, to. I don't know prelude. No, that's probably not the word I'm looking for. But just to set you up for the for the interview you're about to hear. There's not too many people in Australian fishing that haven't been influenced by Starlo in in one way or the other. Yeah, myself included, for sure. Yeah, I think that's. Um, I think that's a fair point to wrap up on too, mate. And um, yeah, he's he's well known and. I'm sure that'll come through. Hopefully, it does come through. But you think it will, Volts? I'm pretty sure it will. He's a are you, are you confident? You, you well, are yeah. you confident that you're going to perform? I mean, are you going to stick to what we spoke to in regards to your behaviour? Uh, what did we speak about with regards to my behaviour? Just, just you know what I mean, mate. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, yeah, so well, with no that, touching, in- no touching the talent. <laughs> <laughs> with that in mind let's get steve on what do you reckon yep cool sounds really good sweet all right back soon guys all right folks welcome back to another week of the intermediate line and on this week's episode we have the esteemed uh, company of of Steve Starling. How are you, Steve? Yeah, good, mate. It's good to be here. Mate, we're glad you can make it. We've been um, putting this one up on a pedestal for a while and intending on getting you on for a while now, but it's just not worked out from our end. And mate, you graciously jumped on with uh, you know just a, a quick um, request. So appreciate you making the time. No worries. We uh, when we we told a few people about you coming on, and we had um, an overwhelming. Um, 
requests for for one particular question and like it'd be a, a miss of me to to not bring it up right from the start and most people want to know mate um based on that iconic scene on tv do you still keep in touch with that dugong <laughs> Oh, I should have known there'd be a Dugong question right up front. No, it's, it's, it's never written, never called. It's just uh, nothing. No follow-up whatsoever. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's, you'd expect Brutal. that from an interspecies sort of deal, wouldn't you, no? It's, uh, <laughs> really, really that's, this is why we're at the top of the food chain, because of that sort of rudeness, I reckon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. If I'm going to be famous for one thing in my life, I reckon that's it. That, uh, that infamous dugong uh, scene from Vanuatu. Yeah. How long ago was that? Oh, gosh, it's a long time ago now. It must have been, I reckon it must have been about uh, probably 96, 97. So it was certainly back, you know, when I was on the Rex Hunt show in the in the 90s. And, you know, there's probably... Uh, younger listeners out there who don't know what we're talking about, just jump on Google and look for Starlo and the Dugong on the Rex Hunt show. You put those keywords in, yeah, it's uh, it's not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> it was, uh, it, it, you know, like I was an, an avid viewer of the Rex Hunt show, as most people would have been in, in that time. Um, and, yeah. you know, it really is one of the scenes that, that sticks with me out of, Almost all of them, you know. It was, uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great when the you know the production crew got got it back to the edit suite and then put sort of romantic music over it all. And <laughs> the, the way they cut it, it was like an episode of the Love Boat. You know, just, <laughs> they just had so much fun with that. Oh, nice. That's hilarious. Oh, That's hilarious. It's so it's such a relief that you laughed at that joke too, Steve. <laughs> we, we, we were worried about it all week. We're like, do we or don't uh, we? Do we? Don't we? You know. But you know, like no, like look, Chris said, the the viewer uh, the viewer feedback or the listener, you know, polling sort of indicated that question needed to be asked. So it was good. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And the, you know, the therapy's worked well. I can I can confront it now and deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> hey, Starlo, the, the real reason we've got you on today now that we've got to the bottom of that is that, uh, you know, well, um, you know, well you, because you, you're one of the greats in, in, in Australian fishing, you know, and we think that um, uniquely that you're one of the conduits between the two worlds. And I say two worlds in inverted commas because you got, you know, I mean, there's a lot of forms of fishing, but people will joke about that you know you've come to the dark side of fly fishing and vice versa with you know conventional fishing but you you do both of them you know there's no there's no question you know in regards to your success on lures um but you seem that to have spent a great deal of your time uh fly fishing even though i mean you can only go to your website to see what your commercial interests are but you don't seem to have many much of a commercial interest in fly fishing but yet you'll spend your time doing it um I guess I want to ask you, after all that, a pretty basic question, why do you fly fish? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was thinking today, going through your, your list of podcasts and looking at your guests and things, and I'm thinking, wow, I don't know if I really deserve to be in, in this hallowed lineup of mostly fly fishers. You know, most of them are, are either majority fly fishers or it's all they do, and, and I'm certainly not in that category uh, the the fact of the matter is I probably spend about 15% of my time on the water 
actually fly fishing. And yet it's what I talk about and write about more often than just about anything else. And I guess it just comes down to personal preference. Um, I get more of a kick out of catching a fish on fly than any other way uh, that I could possibly catch a fish. It's, it's my, it is definitely my favourite form of fishing, uh, even though I've, uh, there have been times over the, the past 40 years when I've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with, with fly fishing as well. But I always come back to it, and it's the thing that keeps me really interested in fishing. Now, having said all that, I've made my career out of communicating about fishing and educating people about fishing and promoting product and stuff like that. And like you say, 99.9% of that is not fly fishing. And that's probably just a reflection of uh, the Australian market. I made the decision quite early in the piece that if I was going to make a living out of uh, fishing communication in this country, I was going to have to be a multi-species, multi-discipline type angler and be able to do a bit of everything. Mm. Uh, it, we just haven't got a big enough market in this country to, to specialise, to be, to be a, a Lefty Cray or a Dan Blanton or anything like that. We just don't have that in this country. So the only way I was ever going to make a living out of it, which is what I decided I wanted to do when I was about 22 years old, um, was to was to have a crack at everything. And, and I loved it all and I don't regret um, having to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I've caught a lot more fish and been to a lot more places and done a lot more things because I fish all the disciplines than if I'd sort of locked myself into fly fishing. But I'll tell you a little, an interesting little story. When, when I was approaching my 11th birthday, and we're talking about 1969, um, I, I was already pretty, pretty keen on my fishing and I'd never, I'd never seen anyone fly fishing. I'd never seen a fly rod and reel in the, in the flesh or a fly or anyone fly fishing, but I'd done so much reading. I was an avid reader even then, and I, I was under the spell of fly fishing. And when my grandparents asked me what I wanted for my 11th birthday, I said a fly rod and reel, and they were staggered. And uh, my grandfather went to the, the local tackle shop, um, which was probably Chapman's in Sydney, because that's they lived in that part of the world, and um, uh, and put that to them and said, you know, 11-year-old boy wants a fly fishing outfit. And they said, no, 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 fly is way too hard for a kid of that age. Don't get him fly gear, he'll hate it. So he ended up getting me a surf rod and reel. And I often wonder what would have happened if I'd got a fly rod and reel for my 11th birthday. I probably would have become a fly fisherman only and I probably wouldn't have ended up making a career um, out of recreational fishing. It's funny, it's one of those sliding doors moments in your life where it could have huh. gone either way. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to ponder. But I've certainly had no regrets about doing all kinds of fishing. And I think uh, being a being a keen on fly fishing has made me better at lure fishing and being keen on lure fishing has made me better at fly fishing. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, uh, that's a fascinating point. Um, and <laughs> we sort of... We, we'll circle back on that later on in the, in the interview, um, but that that, um, that sort of um, is a fascinating um, insight into it. Steve, did um, did you know? Uh, I know you've travelled a lot, and and you've you, like you mentioned, you fished for a lot of different species. Did um, do you feel like that sort of versatility and transferable skills in um, in both fly and and in species? Um, sort of uh, and approach to them uh, sort of help you uh, ac across the board? 
Yeah, look, definitely. And, um, and also that international travel played into my eventual uh, passion, I think, for, for fly fishing as my favourite form of fishing. Yeah. I, I first dabbled with, with fly um, as an answer, a keen young answer, Australian National Sports Fishing Association member back in the, in the 70s. Yeah. And in those days, it was just another form of tackle that you could catch a master's fish on or a, or a record fish or whatever to work towards your, you know, your, your title that you were trying to sort of win for answer or whatever. And fly was one of the divisions. And so I, I got a fly, I had an old Fenwick fly rod and I used to chase Taylor and, and um, flathead uh, and stuff like that on it and, and mullet in the salt and then caught my first few trout in the freshwater. And it, I, I, I enjoyed it, but I just saw it as another string in the bow. And it, it actually wasn't until the end of the 1980s um, when I spent a year in living and working in Canada, and I actually ended up as the editor of uh, Canadian Sport Fishing magazine over there. Yep. And the guys that I was working with did quite a bit of fly fishing. And of course, you know, Canada's got so many fly fishing opportunities. And funnily enough, the species that really, uh, I guess, flicked the switch in my brain to make me absolutely love fly fishing and see just how how much it had to offer was um, the smallmouth bass in, yeah. in Canada and, and oh, I yeah. started chasing those on fly. I had a couple of waterways quite close to where I lived and I mean literally you know, a couple of kilometres from home where I could go after work and chuck a, a wet fly, just a woolly bugger or something like that on a, on a six or seven weight and catch one, two, up to three pound smallmouth bass and they're just the greatest fish. They're, Yep. When I try and explain them to Aussie anglers, I say, "Think of a think of an Aussie bass that that jumps like a trout, and you've got a you've got a smallmouth bass. They're they're terrific fish, and yeah, and that was what cemented my love for for fly fishing. The the smallmouth bass, as as an interesting segue, it, it's responsible for. Um, I think Bob Clouser nominated that as one of his favourite fish, and I know Lefty Cray was pretty fond of him as well. Um, mm. So it, it's a it's amazing that that um, it had the same effect on you. Um, <coughs> Also, when you said you lived in Canada, Canada's a big place. Did did you do the, the West Coast or the East Coast? Well, yeah, I've been a few times. I was fortunate enough to go to Canada a couple of times. Um, I went over there for the first time in 81 as a, as a very young uh, editor of Fishing World magazine. Yeah. Um, I was invited over there to fish in a, a tuna fishing competition and end up catching one of those massive... Uh, Atlantic bluefin tuna and, and winning the event and so I my my shares were pretty good I think with the Canadian consulate in Australia I wrote some some pretty glowing stuff about the place and I got invited back again in the mid uh, 80s to fish in a, a salmon fishing competition on the west coast over in British Columbia again not not fly fishing and then because of, of that I got another invite back to to um, fish in northern Saskatchewan in the late 80s and that's when I met the, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Italo Labignan. And Italo and his partner at the time, Henry Wozchuk, his business partner, they, they had a TV show called Canadian Sport Fishing and they, mm. they wanted to set up a magazine to go with their, with their TV show and they had no idea about um, uh, publications and magazines and any of that side of things. They'd come into it through the television side. So they picked my brains about it. They liked some of my suggestions and they invited me over and I went over and lived lived there for a year with a young family uh, and we lived on the shores of Lake Ontario on the eastern side of Canada, quite mm -hmm. close to um, Toronto, to the capital. 
And um, I did travel around a bit during the year when I lived there, but mostly in Ontario and um, and Quebec uh, rather than going back to the West Coast. But um, yes, I've seen a, seen a fair bit of Canada and it's a, a terrific country with, with heaps of fishing opportunities. It's got so much in common with Australia. It's a big, a big country, most of which is empty and the people sort of cling along the edges. We're, you know, in this country, we, we cling around the coast. In, in Canada, it's more along the, the border with the US. That's where all the, the big cities and everything are. And then you've got all this wilderness further north and just magnificent country and a lot of uh, uh, fly-in lodges and places like that. It's, we just have no idea in this country how little fresh water we've got, you know, until you go to somewhere like Canada and you fly over it and it's just lake after lake after lake. There's thousands of them. Some of them haven't even got names. You know, some of them are as big as your, your uh, bathtub at home and, and others are as big as Victoria. You know, it's just a, an amazing place with a lot of water and a lot of fishing opportunities. Just gets a bit too bloody cold in the winter for me. <laughs> it must have been overwhelming for someone from Australia that you know that uh, probably already had that um, that freshwater, you know, the, the interest in Australian freshwater species to to see to see the um, possibilities of that many lakes. Um, that must have been crazy. But I, I was interested in, in circling back to something you said there in regards to smallmouth bass triggering, you know, really cementing in your interest into fly fishing. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask you before we move too far away from it. Were, were you already fishing for them with conventional gear? And I, I was interested in your comparison in regards to that, if you were. You know, like a, like I was imagining perhaps that maybe you were shown this fishery throwing small hard bodies around or, or what have you and then decided to have a crack on the fly and gone, you know what, I, I think I'll just leave the, the cast, cast rod at home. Is that that's exactly that's exactly it. I started out catching them on soft plastics and little hard bodies and little surface fizzes. D different times of the year, they do different things. That's one of the one of the terrific things. That, and I think why the the bass, uh, large mouth and small mouth, are so popular and such a good basis for tournament circuits and everything else over there is that they just behave so differently from from one week to the next and even one location to the next. You know, so you can use a whole range of techniques to target them and so yeah I was introduced to them on conventional gear tried them on fly and they were one of those species where I didn't feel disadvantaged at all throwing a fly for them I, I felt like I was going to catch probably about as many on fly as I was going to catch on on conventional gear and I was going to enjoy it a lot more in the process so yeah that was a that was a bit of a an eye-opener and a bit of a catalyst for me I think mm. Oh, there's something that um, there's a bit of a parallel here to something that uh, that I have in my fly fishing career that's been through you, and I realise how cryptic that sounds right now. But um, there was a book that that you wrote in in in, in um, for uh, or in conjunction with with your mate Bushy um, for catching brim on flies and lures. And when I think of you hearing about a species that you didn't feel disadvantaged with, you know, a species like brim seems to be a, a, a particular species that you would be disadvantaged on, on fly with. But you do a lot of it recently, I see on your social media pages. But um, obviously, you've been doing it for a long time. Like, I mean, that book, I, I bought that book, it'd have to be 20 years ago. Easy. Um, mm. it'd, it'd, it'd at least be that long, you know. And, and I, I thought it was um, – because for me, brim fishing is what got me into into fly, you know. So it was one of the first things – first publications on on instructional or an instructional publication on, on fly fishing that i ever bought um so brim is a target there starlo so you know uh, is that 
was that madness to be starting on brim with fly fishing, do you think? <laughs> I reckon it is madness to start on them, yeah. But, you know, as Vic McChrystal wrote so many years ago, uh, if, you can, if you can come close to mastering brim on lures, you won't have any trouble at all with any other species. And that's even more true of fly, I think. Uh, I certainly would not put brim in the same category as smallmouth bass where I'd say that I'm not disadvantaging myself chasing them on fly. I know that even today, and I've learned a fair bit in the last couple of years about targeting brim on fly, I still feel like I've got one hand tied behind my back metaphorically when I target brim on fly compared to targeting them on lures. And I'll tell you a little story from the last three days. This is like real fresh stuff. I've, um, I've been chasing some brim down here in some new country. Uh, the southern black brim at the moment uh, are getting ready to spawn. They're all rowed up. And what they what they need to do is they look for a particular salinity level, and it's a fair bit lower than pure salt water. It's a, it's a brackish water. I forget how many, I think it's like 25, 24 parts per million or might be lower than that of salt mm -hmm. that they need to, to spawn. So we haven't had much rain in the last couple of weeks. So what, they, what they're doing is they're pushing right up some of our little coastal creeks. And, and I found a, a patch of fish a couple of days ago up in really – it looks like – it almost looks like trout water. Actually, what it really looks like is sooty grunter water from up oh, yeah. north, but it's just a hell of a lot colder. It's um, 20 centimetres to a metre deep, clear, slightly flowing sticks and snags and sandbars and gravel, gravel bars and then a hole that might be 1.5 metres deep. That's about as deep as it gets. And there are schools of brim up there, and they're as skittish as hell – they're up there with a whole bunch of bully mullet as well, and they're tricky to catch. And I went out a couple of days ago, found them, left it until quite late in the day when the when the uh, light was starting to lose its sting and the shadows had snuck out from the bank and I was able to sneak along in the shadows and flick a little timber hard-bodied lure on, on light braid and a, and a skinny leader. And I got five hits for my hour of fishing and I landed three three brim and the best fish was like 42 or 43 centimetres. Really nice, big, solid fish, full of row. And it was great. And I thought, all right, I'm coming. This was from the bank, by the way, just, just sort of bank bashing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back tomorrow with fly and I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to come back and see if I can do it on fly. Well, I went back. I got two bites and I, I actually, it's one of the few times I've come home from a fishing trip with a donut having... But, but being willing to pat myself on the back for having got two bites because <laughs> it was incredibly difficult and and incredibly frustrating because I was using a six-weight outfit. I was, you know, I bumped the leader up to about 14 or 15 feet because I knew how skittish they were going to be and it was still like I was projecting uh, some sort of force field in front of me that was repelling the fish. And what was happening was... That line going over the water, no matter how softly I put it down, it was spooking the mullet that were between me and the brim, and the mullet were dashing past the brim and spooking the brim, no. and there was just no way around it. Uh, you know, someone, a better angler than me, might have been able to come up with a, with a way of, of getting around it, but I could find no way of not having that exclusion zone in front of me wherever the, the fly line touched down. And I tried fishing really short. That didn't work. 
um, you know, just barely putting any fly line on the water, just mostly leader, that you couldn't get that close to the fish without spooking them. So you had to fish further out. That meant you were putting fly line on the water and that meant that you were spooking the mullet that was spooking the brim. And, yeah, the only two bites I got were by presenting the fly at a fairly long distance to structure. Now, most of these fish weren't on structure, but a few of them were obviously holding on the, on the snags and those were the two bites I managed to pull. And I pinned one of them and actually pulled the hook on him uh, during the fight. But, you know, that was by landing the fly sort of 20 centimetres from a stick at a range of, of maybe, I don't know, a, a 60 or 70 foot cast. Um, and that was the only way I got the bites. And, I, you know, I know that I would have caught three or four fish on lures. So there are times and there are plenty of times when I believe that fly is not the most effective way to target a fish but it's still incredibly rewarding and if one of those fish had stuck and i'd have got it in it would have been that day that i remembered in a year's time not the previous day when i caught the three on the on the hard-bodied lures so that's a fairly roundabout way of explaining why why i love fly fishing why it frustrates the hell out of me and why it's not always the best way to catch a fish <laughs> yeah wow that's um you know because you I mean you've already painted the picture to my next question i was just going to ask which was just a simple one way question of, of what why do you do it then like it's um i mean because we already i mean a lot of people already know why they do it but you know for such a, a well-rounded angler i mean and, and you're still rounded like you're like you just said you took lures there one day fly there the next you know it's um it seems like it's that that self-imposed self-imposed limitations that that you enjoy about fishing for such an, an experienced angler is that would that be fair enough to say yeah, yeah, I think, you know, in a way, making things hard for yourself. It's probably, um, I, I did some hunting way back when I was in my 20s, and um, I can see the charm of bow hunting as opposed to rifle shooting. Um, it must have a lot of parallels, I think, with the, with the difference between fly fishing and yeah. using conventional gear. We do it not because it's the easier and more effective way but actually because it's the harder way and we're going to get more satisfaction out of it and that's not always the case there are plenty of scenarios where fly i mean if you're on a bit of trout water and the and the fish are rising to mayfly spinners or whatever you're going to catch a lot more of them on fly than you're going to catch anything else and there are situations in pelagic fisheries with you know when the mat churner and, and salmon mm -hmm. and things are on little eyes where you're going to do better on fly than you are on anything else but those are those examples are, are the minority, and in most situations, you can do things more effectively with other forms of tackle. I'll give you another great example of this. Um, I, I really admire the, the way that Peter Morse will fish for anything with fly, and he'll, make, he'll meld fly fishing to make it work for the thing that he decides to do. And so if he's... You know, I know he, he went over and caught WA Jewfish in, in 30 metres of water off, off the bottom on fly and he catches uh, coral trout and largemouth managai and stuff up north on deep reefs using fly. Now, the only way you can do it is with a high D line um, and then he'll go even further and put quite a big sinker, you know, something the size of your little fingernail or bigger. In, mm. in the loop that the fly's tied onto and bomb it down onto the bottom. Now, it works. It catches the fish. But you know what? I can go there with a soft plastic on a spin rod and I know I'm going to outfish him probably five to one. And that's mm. not because I'm a better angler. It's because the gear is so much better at telling me what's going on. The only way you're going to know that you've got uh, a high D line and, and a lead-weighted fly on the bottom on fly gear is when you snag. When you mm. snag that fly on the bottom or you catch the 
fish that you're targeting, then you know you're on the bottom. I can throw a soft plastic in there on a half-ounce jig head, watch that belly of braid, and when it relaxes, I know I've just touched the bottom. I can pick it up straight away and start working it and bouncing it, and it's just so much more effective than... It's like trying to peel an orange in your pocket doing that stuff with, with fly gear. <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny, like, you, you know, you use Peter Morrison as an example there, you know, like, and, and it is a good example there. I mean, the guys are a well-travelled angler. Um, but, I mean, like the guys, you got guys that um, might be fishing more harder fish and more populated waters there that still persist with um, with fly only, you know. Like, there's a lot of guys, I mean, that, and that's a growing trend where, you know, as opposed to someone like Peter Morse who, who gets invited around to these great fisheries and gets shown by people who put those yards in, in their local areas, you know, you got these guys that are sort of... Um, you know, don't have the money or the or the or the contacts to travel and so of that, and they'll be they'll be grinding away at, uh, um, you know, twenty centimeter brim, like and and going back every day or or flathead and stuff like that every every single day. And I mean, you must admit that's um, I mean, the, the two aren't really comparable, but like I mean, it's it's a it's it's certainly admirable for someone to rock up in in those scenarios of highly pressured waters like you said like with you you know with your spawning uh, black brim i mean those those fish are skittish as i mean we've all seen brim you know take off like a scalded cat with just a raised eyebrow you know i mean but but to, to not just sort of wait for your opportunity to go fish you know um glamour water those guys that, that are really persisting is, is the people that i take the interest in and 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 why do they do that when they've still got access to all the lures and and all that sort of stuff going on anyway you know it's um yeah it, it's a fascinating that, debate of the two flip sides there you know yeah i mean you you had steve peach on on your podcast there a, a while ago and peachy's a good mate Great of mine lives yeah. in sydney and he's just such a he just loves his fly fishing so much and he'll go out and chase his brim and his flathead and his blackfish and you've got guys like royce uh, royce shanks um yep. in sydney who is a, a blackfish specialist and he'll chase he'll chase them all week on weed and floats and center pin reels and then he'll drag the fly gear out and go back to the same spot and catch half a dozen on fly. Uh, I really admire guys like that who've cracked the, the bread and butter species, the things we all take for granted. Um, and I've got nemesis fish. I just cannot, I cannot work out whiting, you know, yellowfin whiting. I've caught them on fly. I've, I've caught a few and I've caught, my best one I've caught was on a surface fly and that's certainly the way to do it. But that's another example of where, you're deliberately doing something that is far less efficient than lure fishing. When I go chasing whiting on, on surface lures using little mm. stick, stick baits and poppers and I'm throwing them on three or four pound braid, light leaders, uh, beautiful light single-handed spin gear, I can throw it 120, 130 feet down the flats, especially if I've got a little bit of breeze behind me and I'm fishing effectively out there a long way away from where I'm wading or where the boat or kayak is and I'm catching whiting, then... I swap over to, to fly gear and I'm punching that fly line out, maybe getting 70 or 80 feet, uh, and that fly line's whacking on the water again, creating that, that dead zone yep. in front of me. I'm only getting the effective length of the, the leader, really, as, as my, my fishing zone. You know, Again, it's just making it all really hard for you, and I, I just admire the people who don't spit the dummy, throw in the towel. I mean, <laughs> one of the tips I would give anyone 
trying to make the transition from lure to fly is leave the lure gear at home, guys, because if I'd had that spin rod with me yesterday, after two or three casts and watching those mullets spook, I'd have walked back to the car, thrown the fly rod in the back and pulled the spin rod out. But because I had the fly gear with me I had, and that's all I had, I stuck with it. Now, it didn't pay off, but next time it, it might, you know, and mm. unless you're willing to bite the bullet and do those hard yards... Um, you're probably not going to make the breakthrough. So if you're serious about it, don't take the other gear, just take the fly gear. That would be one tip I'd definitely give. Yeah, for sure. That That's really common advice from, uh, you know, from, from a lot more experienced um, anglers, fly anglers to, to newbies is saying, you know, leave it at home. And I can't, I can't reiterate that enough. You know, my, 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 um, my fly journey became a lot, you know, less bumpy when, when I was compelled to use fly gear because I didn't, you know, left the other stuff at home. In fact, you know, I left it in mothballs. I've still got a bunch of, of rods and, and reels and um, lures. There's some some really expensive Japanese lures that I haven't had out of the box maybe 15 years or so. I just can't bring myself to sell them or move them on because I paid so much for them. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just, they're sitting there unused, you know. <laughs> Stick them up on YouTube, you'll sell them, no problems. You can buy fly, more fly gear then. <laughs> that's a good idea, mate. I might need some new rods and uh, and lines and reels. So but that, that's how I can finance them in, in a friendly and, and soft way, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, get it past the financial control. That's, um, that's what I, was, I thought you were leaning towards. A friendly and soft way just means no arguments with the missus, right? Yeah, which you can't argue, mate, you know. Get, get rid of 20 lures, buy one rod. You know, that's 20 to 1. I think that's fair. You know, <laughs> <Exactly>. good math <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Can't yeah. argue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. What? Where did we? We sort of fell off the the rail a bit there. I just wanted to to <laughs> circle back on, um, you know, Steve. In a way, um, you know, there was a very very the last great fly boom was probably um. You know, around the the turn of the century or the millennium, you know, two thousand, and um, you mm. know, we had a number of drivers there. Uh, most people will acknowledge, um, you know, river runs through it. Uh, you know, wildfish. Um, uh, the the comedians, um, t uh, Tom Blight. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, river somewhere. Sorry. Yeah. And and yeah, there was yeah. also, you know, it was fly was um, uh, well, fly life had been going to maybe four years or, or five years then, and. And modern fishing and fishing world, you know, they were awash. There were each each month there was, you know, there was a, a fly, you know, at least one fly article in there. Freshwater fishing from AFN that had a really strong, um, you know, a, a fly fly um, presence as well. But that sort of that boom came to a bit of an end, um, in in a way. I mean, you know, some hardcore people stayed on, but you know, the the sort of a lot of people who got in then also got out and, and got onto the the soft plastics trend there. Um, and, uh, at the forefront of those was, uh, was yourself, of course, um, you know, with squidgies, you brought a whole lot of new shapes and, and lures and, and success to, um, to, uh, soft plastic fishing. Um, uh, yeah, did, did, during that time, did you, did you continue to fish fly then? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Um, video killed the radio star and Bushy and Starlo <laughs> killed, killed the fly boom. I think is what a lot of people think, and I, I must admit I'll put my hand up to it. I think we, I think we did. I think the soft plastic thing um, got a lot of people. Well, I think it, it 
it dragged a lot of people away from bait fishing, some yeah. of them, some of whom may have gone to fly. I think a small subset of those may may have gone to fly if the plastics hadn't been around. But mm. I always remember a, um, a tackle shop owner saying to me in the early days of, of the squidgy boom, uh, he said, you guys have nailed it. He said, there was two old blokes in the shop here the other day. He said, they were both in their 70s and I've been selling them blocks of pilchards for the last 15 years and they were standing over there at the wall arguing about which colour squidgy is better for flathead. And he said, those blokes, if they may have owned a wonder wobbler uh, or a sliced chrome lure that they threw for Taylor, but that would have been the only time they would have ever used a lure before that. And there they were arguing about the nuances of, co of colours for soft plastics for flathead. It really did make a huge change to uh, the way Australia went fishing. And, and yeah, and I think it did probably take away from some of the people who might have gone through the ranks and, and ended up being fly fishermen because it, it coincided with the arrival of a whole lot of beautiful finesse gear. We suddenly had these wonderful little uh, super smooth um, spinning reels and high modulus graphite rods that you could barely feel in your hand, you know, and, and the braid, I think, was the, the big thing that made the mm. difference. The fact that you could feel a fish fart on your lure at 50 paces, you know, it was just amazing that the, the, the touch and the finesse that you suddenly had with that gear, uh, it turned uh, a, a lot of average fishermen into much better fishermen, I think, and, and that they had that suddenly they had the equipment to be able to go out and, and catch uh, you know, good good catches of fish and and target things like flathead and brim and mulloway and so forth on, on soft plastic. So, yeah, look, I think it definitely had an impact. It's funny you talk about um, uh, a river uh, a river runs through it. The um, the American movie, which I think was sort of late nineties, and that did definitely kickstart a boom more more so in the US, I think, than than here. But it, it did kickstart a bit of a boom here as well. But I. I was pretty good mates with um, the late Andrew Broz, who uh, was a, a big name in, in fly fishing back in those days. He owned the uh, the Australian fly fisherman down there at Rushcutters Bay in Sydney. Quite a character, the old Andrew. He he tended to polarise people a little bit. He was uh, a bit like the John Cleese of, of fly fishing, and he ran his um, he ran his fly shop a bit like uh, Faulty Towers. But anyway, I digress. He um, <laughs> he made the point that about. 18 months after that um, River Somewhere boom happened, uh, oh, sorry, a river runs through it. I keep getting those two mixed up. River runs through it, the, the, the Redford movie. There was a whole lot of secondhand fly gear hit the market because people got into it and then realised it was much, much harder. It wasn't just like, it wasn't like getting into tennis where you buy the the right clothes to wear and a good tennis racket and go and have a couple of hours with a coach and you can play tennis you can you can do that with fly you can go and buy the right gear and have a couple of hours with a casting instructor and you can cast but then you have to go and find some water and find some fish and fight your way through some blackberries or you know wrestle your way down the rocks and, and actually catch some fish and that's not easy and you've got the weather against you you've got the fish against you you've got everything else and it just went into the two hard basket and a lot of those uh, people that, that made that switch to, to fly fishing at the time didn't stick with it for very long and probably, sadly, didn't probably stick with fishing either. It was the fly fishing that they saw as being the, the romantic uh, side of fishing and that's what they got into. And when it didn't work for them, they just got out of it and went into something else like golf or tennis or mm. whatever. 
but yeah, but and the soft plastics boom definitely uh, took away a little bit from that that fly boom that was happening then. But I, I detect a whilst it's probably less dramatic this time around, I'm I'm feeling that there's a bit of a swing back to, to fly and there has been for the last couple of years. And interestingly, a, a lot of the people that are doing it are the ones that have come up through the ranks of soft plastics and hard bodies and finesse spin tackle and are now looking for the next challenge and seeing fly as, as that challenge. So I'd, I'd like to think that it that it is happening again, at least in a small way. Mm. Well, let me tell you something there, Starlo. Like it's, um, it might be. I mean, you did allude to there was a small group that were led towards fly, and I was one of those. I, I was, I was someone that was, um, you know, using noticing the progression of soft plastics, watching the brim tournaments, and and all that sort of stuff. And I was already fishing for brim on artificials anyway. But once it started to make the mainstream, it was really interesting. And then watching that finesse, like you said, you know, like uh, I think Fireline was the first braid that I was exposed to, um, which was completely foreign you know but uh, compared to a, a spool full of mono but it was just getting more and more more and more finesse like everything was getting more finesse and unweighted plastics and it led me to fly fishing it is um it didn't it definitely didn't take me i watched i kind of it, you know i got into fly fishing in the, in the very late 90s and it was um i kind of watched that i mean that, that boom was already there in soft plastics i really but i watched it get massive while i was i was steering towards fly fishing like a a weird black sheep, I guess you could say, you know, but, um, <laughs> but it was, it was definitely, um, it was definitely the catalyst for me. I had no interest. I used to watch, you know, Rex Hunt's show. I've mentioned on the podcast before, I mentioned both these on the podcast before that, that it was brim fishing on soft plastics that, that got me into, you know, it, it sparked my interest in, in fly fishing for going lighter and lighter and more and more finesse. There wasn't, yeah, there I, I, I used to watch, you know, you guys on, on Rex Hunt catch, you know, small trout and having, Growing up in Queensland and not not knowing trout at all, it, I had no interest in it. It just didn't appeal to me at all. It, it you know, I now I see it. I understand that it's more 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 about the experience and the hunt rather than the trophy sized fish. But I'd look at trout that you fit in the palm of your hand and go, meh, that does not interest me at all. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, it was you know what you guys did with the plastics and 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 continually developing more and more techniques with that and the results that prompted me towards it which i wanted to tell you that story but i also wanted to hypothesize with you in regards to something else you said there in regards to the the, the boom that you're noticing now and and people that have come from finesse plastics hard bodies and stuff like that as well but because you're seeing it it sparked my interest in asking you this question because this is what i think is happening here is that we're seeing a lot of results there you know like um Although, like, I mean, I haven't been around as long as yourself, but but in in those days when I was starting to develop an interest in fly fishing, all I got to see as a matter of results was, um, sorry, my co-host is texting me at the moment. Piss off, Balti. Um, <laughs> I just um, told him he was being verbose. Yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah, I think <laughs> you just listen point. back to your own stupid questions. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you're doing great. <laughs> like a married couple. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not a question. I'm just having a chat. I'm allowed. It's a, it's a, it's a conversation, right? But this is my, this is my question. This is my question, right? Jesus Christ! No. <laughs> um, is the, is the, is the constant supply of results? You know, whereas like back in the 20 years ago, like it might be an article in the back of a magazine, like uh, a columnist would write a regular article in regards to fly fishing, as opposed to it being the main feature. Although it would feature in some of the main articles for sure, but it wasn't the majority of it. But now. 
I can, I mean, those articles were generally relating to sort of someone who travels somewhere and catch something far and exotic. But for me, who couldn't travel and wanted to see, you know, like uh, was getting into fly fishing, uh, you know, and wasn't getting results on the water for things like flathead and brim. I wasn't seeing a lot of other people getting results of that, and I could have easily given it up. But now, I can go to Instagram or Facebook and see people in my area getting results, and I know it can be done then, and it can be can be um, pushing me could could be pushing me if I started now further to persist in in that uh, in in fly fishing as as so to speak. It's a lot more mainstream in um, in what what people are seeing these days. It might be just my feed, but I wonder if if you agree with that. Oh, definitely, uh, and and it's it's social media that that's done it because, you know, I was a magazine editor for many years, and we it's all driven by selling magazines and how many what people want to read, and and we were always a bit leery about putting fly fishing stuff because straight away you alienate. You know, we used to watch the sales because when I was um, editor of Fishing World way way back in the in the early eighties, you'd watch the sales figures go up and down depending on what was on the cover. And the two things that would kill your sales was putting a marlin on the cover uh, because I think it just alienated a whole lot of people. You know, I'm not a rich game fisherman. That doesn't interest me. Or you put a, uh, someone with a trout caught on fly on the cover and it had the same effect, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's those blokes with the leather elbow patches and the briar pipes and the tweed jackets. That's, that's not for me either. That's mm. changed. Now, like you say, you can go onto social media and see some... Uh, you know, some young uh, up-and-coming fishing grommet with a with a, a big fat brim that he's caught on fly, or a, a bunch of uh, flathead, or some tail, or salmon, or whatever that he's caught, or she's caught on fly, mm. and it's it just seems more reachable and achievable that people can go and do it. You would never a little bit of that stuff was going on, but it just wasn't getting seen, so it didn't feed on itself. But now it feeds on itself, and if you want to go onto YouTube and and, and Google brim on fly, you're going to get a whole lot of hits and you're going to be able to watch stuff for, for hours. And I must say, you know, my YouTube channel, I've got well over 100 clips on there and only about half a dozen of them are fly-oriented, but those fly ones tend to get a disproportionate amount of interest because the people who want to get into that are hungry for information. So you give them, give them some information, give them some ideas, let them see some fly fishing, particularly the sort of stuff that they can probably do down at the end of their own street or within an hour's drive of where they live rather than at an, an exotic location, and they're just going to be all over it. They love it. They lap it up. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think that's um, it can only be a good thing, and I kind of wonder if we're going to see more of a, a levelled-out boom or, or, or depression in the sport, I guess you could say. You know, I guess it depends. Social media is still quite young. What are we looking at, 10 years, mate, 10, 12 years or something like that? Um, mm. maybe a little bit more with forums and things like that as well. We still really don't know, you know. And, and in that short period of time that I've been fly fishing for like twenty years or something like that, I've seen it. I've seen it um, ebb and flow both ways once, you know. So I'd say we're in a bit of a boom here, but I've seen it through like what we spoke about through the two thousands with you know your success with with squidgies and things like that as well, and soft plastics and yeah, you know, obviously finesse gear. I've seen all that happen with. You know, I don't know. Who knows? But the, the tournament scene really perpetuated that quite a bit as well. There was not much fly fishing in the tournament scene either. But now, like, you know, you, you don't have to turn too far. A lot of uh, people are using fly fishing uh, to promote themselves as well, um, which is which can only be a good thing for the industry. But I just I just wonder if, you know, the, the ebb and flow of fly fishing really depends on 
the perpetuation of, of social media, which I can't really see going away, to be honest with you. No, no, it's not going to go away. But, you know, the other thing that we haven't touched on is the improved efficiency of, of fly fishing too. I mean, the gear that's available now, and especially in terms of bang for buck and the fact that, you know, when I, when I first got sort of serious about fly fishing, what everyone used to tell you was you need to spend serious dollars on a rod at least, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, cheap rods are, are just not worth having. Well, nowadays, there's, there's mid-priced and lower-priced uh, fly rods out there that I'm quite happy to use. You can get into fly fishing as a proportion of a week's income. You can get into fly fishing more cheaply today at a higher level than you could 20 years ago. I firmly believe that. And the mm. other thing is that the flies and the and the techniques for using them have definitely advanced as well. I mean, it hasn't just stayed locked in where it was in, in the year 2000. You know, things like those game changers and some of the materials that are around now and the, the fly lines with, uh, you know, varying density so that they sink straight rather than with a big belly in them and things like that. And the, the fluorocarbon materials that we're making leaders out of where we can use really skinny stuff that's quite abrasion resistant and hard for the fish to see, all that has has made fly fishing more efficient just the same way that braid and soft plastics and high modulus graphite rods made lure fishing more efficient through the through the early 2000s as well and we shouldn't mm. disregard that that's true that's a that's a very good point that uh then circling back to what you said earlier steve about the the soft plastics boom you know was on the back of availability of you know uh improved tackle a wider variety of lures and you know to, to parallel that in fly fishing where we've got you know new styles of flies and materials to tie them to make them better and yeah i also think um We've got greater availability and understanding, like when I say availability of knowledge and, and understanding of what we're actually trying to achieve. Um, and I think social media has brought a lot of the minds together. It's made that access to to, to information and the fermentation of ideas, um, you know, even the pollination and of, of things, you know, across borders, across regions, um, so much faster. Yeah, for sure. For sure, mm. uh, it's just getting the info. It, that's right. It's getting the information out there. It's showing people what's achievable. You know, you can get on YouTube and see what flies actually do underwater. Um, stuff that just wasn't what, what, when magazines were our only form of, of um, communication in, in the fishing world for a lot of us. And don't get me wrong, I, I loved magazines. I grew up with magazines, and they were my my chosen uh, medium. And I, I I miss the fact that magazines are fading from the scene these days but i've also got to admit that if i want to learn something now i don't go and dig out an old back copy of of fly life or fishing world or whatever i jump on youtube you know if i want to learn how to tie a new knot or i want to learn how to tie a fly i do it on on youtube not through a magazine or a book so and that and i'm 63 so i'm sure that uh, younger people are using it um, even more and, and it's got to be it's got to be good for the sport in the long run but like you say it's hard to know where we'll be in 10 years' time. Another thing that's – and it came up in uh, when I listened to your podcast with Peachy uh, earlier today and he was talking about how much better the fishing in Sydney Harbour is today than it was when he was a young bloke growing up. And that's actually true in, in quite a few of our urban fisheries now. There's been improvements in water quality. There's been 
significant reductions in um, in commercial fishing in some areas, not so much in others, unfortunately. There's also been an enlightenment on the part of recreational anglers where we no longer kill everything we can possibly catch and stuff it into a bag, and that's been backed up by uh, tighter restrictions, bag limits and size limits and uh, slot sizes and all that kind of thing. It's actually uh, reason for guarded optimism, I think, about the fishing, particularly in, in some of our more uh, heavily populated areas around the coast. So there's fish available. I mean, the kingfish, the kingfish fishery in Sydney Harbour over the last 10 years or so, you know, kingies generally are in a bit of bit of strife up and down the east coast and the, the science shows that their numbers are not great but in sydney harbour they've bounced back big time and you've got guys out there chasing them on plastics on on uh top water uh skip baits and also on fly every weekend and on many weekdays when those fish are around so yeah availability better tackle better communications there's a lot of ducks have, have lined up in a row to to bring the current bit of a surge it's not that spectacular peak which is so often followed by a spectacular dip in popularity for fly fishing it's more a, a steady incline at the moment and i see it rising and i hope it keeps going that way mm. yeah and we, we've discussed the um the positives of social media there steve you know in, in how it's sort of uh it's helped the development of fishery and techniques um is there um have you have you also witnessed some some negativity mate um you know in various forms Oh, for sure. I mean, and I, I wrote about this recently in a couple of different forums, but one of the things is the fact that uh, we probably all need to think a lot more about what we post on social media in terms of what we're catching, where and how, in terms of putting pressure on, on the fish. And it, it's not so much pressure from our peers, from the people who share the same um, standards and ethics as ourselves. It's it's other people seeing those posts who perhaps don't share those those ethics. And not to put too fine a point on it, but there's there's commercial fishermen and netters around the place who who studiously watch what's going on on some of the recreational um, anglers uh, streams, and they you know they know when the they know when the brim are running up a, a certain river or or when there's schools of mulloway along a, a stretch of beach or whatever because they're seeing those catches on social media so we all need to be absolutely aware of that yeah mm. and and there's also just the other the, the nasty side of it you know the fact that people say say things to and about each other on social media that they would never say face to face uh if they ran into someone else um in the pub or, or down the street or whatever it's that anonymity of of hiding behind a, a keyboard allows people to be quite mean to each other at times and i think that can particularly have a, a negative impact on on younger anglers coming up through the ranks and they're the ones we need to be to be really encouraging so yeah there, there are certainly negatives yeah. associated with um with social media mm. recent times aren't really hurting with that helping with that either i mean like it's uh people poor you know people that are unfortunately in lockdowns with with nothing to do you know i really feel for myself but like it's uh i mean it's always been around i suppose it, it is pretty ugly it's not good for the sport or the or the future of the sport for anyone involved in it that's for sure that side of things and and probably the biggest maybe the biggest particularly with fly fishing because it is so small the biggest enemy that fly fishing has got is is that infighting really at the end of the day um uh, we we really need participation and without you know the um not making the sport appealing through that side of things is not going to do anyone any good that's for sure that's right yeah for sure mm. I, i'm gonna i'm just gonna have a little bit of a a, a soapbox moment here but I, I think unification 
here is um you know for, for fly fishermen fishermen in general we need we probably need to stand together on on a few issues and look at the bigger bigger problems in the future like habitat um you know resource sharing you know is could be a dirty word depending on you know which side of the pro amateur side of things you, you're sitting on but e even together with with pros you know would give us um more more um you know could give us more access to to scientific fundings we know more about um you know uh the fish the resource the habitat the, the whole cycle of things um you know sometimes i feel like fracturing um in into the various factions is is not uh is not you know a long-term benefit for anybody no it's not and i think the best way around that is just to have respect for the other the other person's point of view and and their their preferences and how they want to fish i mean i, I think as soon as it starts to and we're all guilty of it you know i yeah. do, i always talk about bait lure and fly as if they're three steps going up the up the mountain towards enlightenment you know you start yeah. off <laughs> as a bait fisherman and then you become a lure fisherman and then a few people graduate to become a fly fisher and that's probably not really a healthy way of looking at things we need to have equal respect for for all the forms of fishing and i've geez i've seen i've seen bait really good bait fishers who are so good at their art that they're they're every bit as good as a, a as a good uh, lure or fly fisher, and they're so much better than their peers because they they put some thought into it and they they really know what they're doing and they've learnt over the years exactly what bait to use where and how to get away with no sinker and they go and catch their own bait and, and pump yabbies and worms and things like that as opposed to the the bloke who spins by the servo and buys a packet of mangy old frozen prawns and goes and skewers them on a hook you know. Um, there's 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 class and there's uh, th there's quality within all the different kinds of fishing and we need to sort of look at them all as more of a level playing field than putting a hierarchy in it. I think. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. Look, it, you mentioned um, you mentioned that climbing to the 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 mountain of or climbing the mountain of of enlightenment, um, but it's sort of. Uh, when you said that, I was thinking, well, what is what is the pinnacle, you know, and. Um, is that um, and, and and really is there isn't a pinnacle, is there? I think I think the answer is in the journey. Is that is that how you see it, or that's very zen? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm liking I'm liking your work there. <laughs> I think you're right. It is about the journey, and there is no because when well, yeah, that's right. What is the pinnacle? Is it a is it the biggest fish you can possibly catch on the smallest fly? I remember, you know, Lee Wolf used to talk about catching a twenty pound. Uh, Atlantic salmon on a size 20 fly he regarded that as being the the pinnacle of fly fishing the the biggest fish you could catch on the smallest possible fly but everyone's got their idea of a of a different pinnacle and maybe the way we maintain our own interest in in the sport is to keep setting ourselves new pinnacles so once you've climbed the your own personal everest then you need to have a, a k2 out there somewhere in front of you that might not be as tall a mountain but it's got a more challenging north face or whatever mm. have you given any thought to your k2 <laughs> Uh, these brim have just got me. I'm just so fascinated by by targeting brim on fly that that'll do me for the next little while. I think it's just every time I go out on them, I learn something new, um, and I fit, it just gives me such a buzz when I knock over a big 
a big blue nose brim that I know is no pushover on any gear and I convince it to eat a fly and manage to winkle it out of its snags or whatever and, and land it. That to me, I've caught bonefish and permit and sailfish and black marlin on fly, but to me that, that big blue nose brim is is every bit as rewarding as, as those more, in inverted commas, glamour fish. You, you're well known for brim, mate, I, and I'm and like it, you've never, well, from the time that I've um, known you, do you be around from from Rex Hunt days to, to now? Like brim's been a very big part of of, of the association with the name Steve Starling. It's, yeah, it's, you're it's right. A, it's a it's a lifelong. They're a lifelong challenge to you. Is that would that be uh, fair enough no, to say? No, certainly not a lifelong challenge. I didn't get I didn't get bitten by the brim bug, and it's all bloody Bushy's fault. He he <laughs> got me bitten by the brim bug, and it was. Would have been towards the end of the nineties. I mean, I always, I always enjoyed catching brim, but I would have caught a lot more on bait than I caught on anything else. When I caught them on a lure, it was usually a bit of a, a surprise, and when I caught them on fly, it was a huge surprise. You know, I could probably, I reckon, before two thousand, I could probably count the brim I caught on fly on one hand, um, and then that whole thing started to turn around. But and, and it was a, a sort of perfect storm with the ABT tournament series. Uh, coming online, the so arrival of the soft plastics, the advent of that finesse gear that I was talking about, and it all lined up and it all pointed at brim for me because mm. suddenly we were able to turn a bread and butter fish that your grandfather caught on a hand line wrapped around a cork and a bit of mullet gut and shoved in a sugar bag and took home on the train to feed the family. We turned that fish into... Uh, every man's bonefish or every man's um, permit or whatever. It was a, mm. a tricky fish to catch that you could, that you could target on a range of different uh, forms of tackle and it lived at the end of nearly everybody's street who, who lived anywhere near salt water. So, yeah, and, and for that reason, that I did become a bit fixated with them and, and Bushy and I spent a hell of a lot of time fishing together and refining our techniques for chasing them first on little hard bodies and then on the, the soft plastics when they came along. And then we got the chance to design our own soft plastics through the, the Squidgy um, brand. And yet they have they have tended to dominate my life a little bit. It's interesting. Bushy's now drifted away from them a bit and he sort of got brimmed out, I think. And mm. these days he mostly, he chases things that he can eat. He love, He's an amazing seafood chef and he chases things to, to feed himself and his wife and he's very, very good at it. And he doesn't particularly, he's like me, doesn't particularly like eating brim and he doesn't particularly like the idea of killing things that are 15 and 20 and 30 years old and grow so slowly and, and have better value, I reckon, back in the water for someone else to try and catch. Um, so he doesn't tend to chase the brim as much anymore, whereas I still I still chase brim more than I chase any other uh, species. There's no doubt about it. They, they do dominate a, a large part of my life and uh, on fly as much as any other form of gear. Mm. It's true what you said in regards to, uh, I believe it was you quoted Vic McChrystal, in regards to like if you can catch a brim, you can, you can be successful catching brim on lures, you'll have no trouble with any other fish. And, mm. and like as much as... Jeez, I tell you, brim fishing was so passionate. They're so fun to tease. They really are, and it probably shouldn't. But the fact of the matter is that they're um they're a very very challenging fish, and they're very very challenging on fly. And like you said, they're very very accessible. But I was interested. You, you know, you, you mentioned Bushy there, and I know you guys are, are, are close. You guys co-authored that book, and to talk about that book again, why did you include the the fly aspect in it? What what was there must have been a big enough buzz between you guys to go. We we need to include it. 
Yeah, oh, for sure. And Bushy at that stage had done quite a bit more of it on fly than I had, and he was starting to he was starting to work it out even as early as when we first wrote that book. And that book actually preceded soft plastics. We we stuck a, a late chapter in that book when the plastics thing started at the very early stages of it started to happen on the on the brim front in sort of nineteen ninety eight around that that level. Um, but Bushy had already chased brim a fair bit, and there's a there's a, a bloke that I've got to mention, and I'm sure you guys will have heard of him, uh, Dave Longen, who is... Oh, yeah. You've yeah. <laughs> him on social media at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, yeah. it's funny. He's popping up more on social media than he used to. Dave is is like, um, I don't know what the, the equivalent in, in literature or anything else would be, but he's he's the, he's the unseen man. He's the phantom. You know, he's just... He, yeah. he, he stayed off social media for a long time. He nearly he fishes on his own most of the time. About the only person that he'll regularly fish with is Bushy. Mm -hmm. uh, he much rather fish on his own. Uh, he takes his wife out in the boat with him, but but she doesn't fish. She sits there and reads a book and nets his fish for him. And he is just the most. If you can ever get him on the show, he. But he won't tell you too much. He plays it very very close to the chest. He <laughs> is a superb fly fisher and just on on things like brim and estuary perch and bass and flathead and mulloway he is just an absolute gun and he's doing it all in places that he he can drive to in in half a day from i think he lives in canberra um it's all local stuff in heavily fished waters but he tends to fish them at times when they're not heavily fished he's almost nocturnal i think he might be a vampire he only comes uh -huh. out when it gets dark and then fishes all night a lot of times now, these days he's fishing a fair bit during the day as well but he's a remarkable angler and he, he taught bushy a lot about catching brim on fly and then yeah. i was able to up a bit of that and and run off with it as well in, in different directions so yeah it's just mm. amazing how all the linkages work in fly fishing because I've, I've noticed dave recently uh, you know uh, it's funny enough i i had i had no idea of that or any of that history inside that i've i've have been going back and forth a couple of messages with him but when i first and for no other reason other than just organic chat in regards to fishing i had no idea about that but when i first noticed him like like you said like it you can it's it is he seems quite unassuming, but stands out from the crowd. You know, like his his rods different. Um, he's, <laughs> he's always got cons consistent results to what to what he's doing there. Um, yep. The the way he words his posts is is like you know this this guy is is simplifying things in in it for great res great results, and it's it's something that stood out about him. But like that's it's weird how you brought him up on this podcast because it's uh it seems a tie my opinion of him from just just standing on the outside looking in through social media you know it's uh that's that's mm. really interesting it's um yeah well i can yeah. tell you now that, that bushy puts him on a pedestal you know bushy regards him i regard bushy as as probably the best fisherman i've ever fished with and mm. uh bushy puts longan on that same sort of level for, from his perspective so yeah if you can ever get him on the show and um you might have to i don't know ply him with alcohol or something first to get him to, <laughs> to, to actually tell you anything but he's a pretty amazing character but like like you said there like you know he's obviously you know that's that's some pretty high compliments from 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 just from you and bushy two two guys have seen a lot and like i said earlier in the in the show like the uh the the thing that i admire in, a, in an angler is that ability to um, to maximise results on your local water, and um, mm. you know that's 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 I've said that so many times on this show. I really have, and part of that is wanting to get people into the sport and and not thinking that fly fishing is something you need to travel to faraway locations for, or 
gauge your results against people who go to places that the fish have never seen anyone, you know? Um, yeah. It's m nothing short of, of inspiring to watch someone fish their local waters well and then to do that on fly consistently. Uh, it really gives people, uh, you know, the the drive to persist because not everyone can can go to, I don't know, the Wessels has to put something that's topical now. Like the stuff, the place that Josh has found is incredible looking and there's nothing, there's nothing to take away from that, but it's not mm. accessible to everyone, you know? No. So guys, right. like, guys like Dave, I mean, like it, it'd be, it'd be great to see them put more, more and more out into there and be more revered by the fly fishing community. Although he probably doesn't want to be by the sounds of it either. You know? No, and he doesn't need to be. And I think that's the, that, in some ways, I think that's what I really admire about him. And I'm actually a little surprised that he has, uh, raised his profile a bit more on social media than he has in the past. Although I'll tell you that his main, I think his main motivation for that is to try and raise awareness for the for the waterways that he fishes. You know, he's a, a big admirer of what the Victorians have done as far as getting the the nets out of a lot of our estuaries and so forth. And he's he's a he's pushing hard for more of the same in New South Wales. And I think that's his main motivation. He certainly doesn't seem to be motivated by ego in terms of wanting to be seen as the guru uh, i think he's he's just happy to go and do what he does i mean he if you, you see him and you talk to him you'd think he'd be the sort of bloke that would have an alby sidecast and a shoulder bag full of tailor uh, and a block of pillies you know he's that kind of fisherman but but he fishes that way that practical way with fly and he takes home a feed of flatties and you know a feed of brim when he feels like it and and just just goes goes fishing but his idea of going fishing there's only one style of tackle that he picks up and that's that's a fly rod and i think that's a he's kind of breached that that barrier between fly fishing and and conventional fishing without even thinking about it and it's that total lack of pretension and lack of ego that I think people like Bushy admire so much in Dave, and I can understand that. Mm. I, I often, like we often say on this show, uh, I don't know if we said it with uh, with Peachy's one as well, we probably did, but uh, we say it quite commonly, and it seems like, you know, someone like Dave might be a great example of that, that fly fishing, although it does have its challenges in, in a lot of circumstances, once, once you've got the cast, wide for what you want to throw and where you want to throw it and a good understanding of the tackle and its limitations or its or its ability to be a tool to assist your fishing the actual act of a of a of um of a fish eating the fly once it's got past the line landing or or putting it in front of its face it's quite an effective form of fishing you know and you kind of wonder that um you know with with given how effective finesse fishing is sometimes sometimes you know like as you point out with some of the species like mac tuna as an example Fly fishing kind of is the only option. I mean, it, it doesn't. I personally don't don't see it as as much of a restriction um, once you put the time into it. I guess that's what it costs to be able to have it as an effective fishing tool for putting it on whatever scenario you want to locally. I guess you could say, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm sure that you know you pointed out a scenario there with your with the black brim in, in spawning mode in the shallow water. I'm I'm sure that if you know, I've, I've no no doubt in my mind that. Um, that you know, if you went back a few more days and maybe did a gear adjustment or a fly adjustment, you you'd figure them out. You know, like it's um, I mean, brim are one of those species that, you know, you can rock up to a um a stormwater drain in, in summer that's in deep water around some jetties and stuff and pull 20, 20 off that drain with one fly, but find yeah. those same same fish in a couple of feet of water in gin clear, sometimes still water, that's a different species. You know, completely. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, and the same is true of. of 
lots of different fish. You know, I see a massive amount of big um, uh, luderick here in, in the wintertime in, in our shallow water, and uh, I haven't gone out and put the time in to try and suss them out on the fly, but I'm sure it could be done, and they're as flighty as anything as well. You put any put anything in shallow, clear water, and it's going to be naturally uh, flighty. But like you say, and, and, and I'm not beaten, I'll go back and, and, and I will work on it and I will work out ways to catch them. But I will also admit to myself that I would catch a lot more of them if I just stuck with what I know works, which is a little, you know, a little hard-bodied lure on finesse spin gear, mm. delicately put in there with a, with a four-pound leader and, and fine braid. I'm going to catch more of them. But that doesn't mean I'm going to give up trying to get close to that uh, with fly gear, and there will be there will be ways of doing it. I just haven't cracked it yet. Yeah. Well, I wonder then. You know, that that comes down to attitudes. Of um, I mean, not. I'm not saying you've got the wrong attitude. I realise how that might have sounded. Everyone's attitude. I mean, like really, can be. We measure our success based on a days of fishing. When our success could be measured over a week of working those particular fish out, if the tides allow, or you know, the time of the year allows, or something like that. But I mean, maybe that's where you know, the evolution of a fisherman might change where, you know, our expectations of a day, you know, yeah. you, you, I, I donated that day, but if you went back there four days, gave yourself four days in a row and, mm. and like you measured that success based on four days instead of one day, you know, maybe that's the evolution of a, of a fisherman as well. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, tournament fishing probably uh, showed me that more than anything else. I was quite heavily involved in the in the brim tournaments and to a lesser extent the bass tournaments yep. uh, through through the early 2000s, on, you know, on the ABT circuits and everything. And you very quickly learn that the very best anglers will, will have their bad days and, and vice versa. But the other thing that it also taught me is that no matter how – tough any fishery is how shut down the fish are or whatever someone will work out a way to catch them the the, the, the cream will rise and and on that particular day someone will work out a, a little nuance in what they're doing that'll enable them to get a bag limit while the other guys are, are getting um, zeros and that tells you that there is there is always an answer. You just got to work away at finding what it is. And in fact, there's going to be more than one answer. There's going to be multiple answers, and it might not be the one you want to hear on the day. But um, there there are ways to catch most fish most of the time in most scenarios. Do you think that's what fly fishing can offer an angler? Um, you know, we, with uh, with conventional gear, a lot of the a lot of the, um, I wouldn't say skill is taken. I mean, I, I know it takes incredible skill to put anything you want where you want it to be, you know, all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, if you're a fly angler that uh, that you know, you know, like yourself, that tie, ties their own flies, or even understands how flies are tied to get them tied, you know, you know commercially, there's a lot. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle because you've got to figure out the right weight rod, the the leader construction, the uh, the fly line that suits. You've got to be able to put the cast in depending on whatever adverse conditions are being thrown towards you. You know, there's a, there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle that, that the person in that unique scenario that, you know, that no one else can tell them from the other side of the world that's got to be done. Whereas with conventional fishing, a lot of, um, I mean, you don't, the, 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 the soft plastic or the lure is 99% of the time these days, at least tuned for you out, out of the box. You know, there's no overdressing it. There's no um, mm, figuring mm. out the like the the way it'll act through the as it takes the path of least resistance through the water or anything like that. But as a fly fisherman, you got to work all that out and and have it have it swim in a way that makes you confident to be able to slow down in front of you know a fish that you you, you want to catch. You know there's there's a lot more there's a lot more pieces to that puzzle. 
you know, the, the, yeah, uh, I kind of lost track of my question now. <laughs> no, that's all right. No, I, I know what you're getting at because so verbose. One of the ways you can sum it up is to say that uh, the, the lures these days, particularly hard bodies, are mm. so good. There's so much artistry goes into the, the design of them and the, and the building of them that even a mechanical cast and crank angler will catch a certain amount of fish on them. If you throw it out there and wind it in and think about something else altogether and have your headphones on and you're listening to music or whatever, you are still going to catch some fish. You're not going to catch as many fish as the angler who really knows how to work that, that lure and get the best out of it, but you are going to catch some fish. Whereas with fly, in a lot of scenarios, you're probably not going to catch very many fish, if any, if you just flog it out there and rip it back in and do exactly the same thing mechanically every time and you're not thinking about the retrieve because a fly, most flies anyway, have a lot less inbuilt action. It relies on more input from the angler to make them actually talk to the fish in the mm. water. And I think that's kind of what you were saying and I, and I think you're spot on. But it works back the other way too because once you've become good at that, tell you what, makes you a lot better at working lures. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, that that's exactly what I was. I guess it's I guess the point is that people shouldn't beat themselves up if they're if they're very good at fishing conventional and they want to cross over to fly and and that part of the equation is needs to be worked on. You know, you shouldn't expect instant results, you know? And I guess that's sort of off the back of what I was saying with the um, you know, a day as a day a donut or as a week a, um worth considering as a donut, you know? Mm, um mm. yeah. So that's no, it's 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 food for thought at least. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Look, that, that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think the level, level of consciousness or conscious effort that people put into the, the, the presentation, you know, that, that transcends the, um, the fly lure argument, I think. You know, like a, I've seen some very effective lure fishermen who, who come to fly. They know what they're trying to achieve. Um, and, they, you know, they can feed a fish based on that. You know, um, they, uh, they just got to take that technique or that skill or that presentation and and make it fly literally i think you've, you've really nailed it there and i think it's one of the reasons that i've been able to do okay on fly i'm a I, i'm a really crap caster i'll put my hand up now I, I taught myself to to fly cast when i was 16 years old and ne never got a lesson in my life and um, i throw tailing loops better than just about anyone else i've ever seen, uh, seen i'm a pretty ordinary cast, fly really. <laughs> <laughs> i'm a pretty ordinary fly caster but once i get the fly into the water i'm a i'm a reasonable fisherman i've done a lot of i've done a lot of bait fishing i've done a lot of lure fishing i know what i'm trying to do once that thing gets in the water. And if, if I see a fish, you know, if I see a brim just about balancing that fly on its nose and, and following it, a lot of times I can work out what to do to turn that fish into an eater, you know, from a watcher into an eater. And yep. those are the things that, that, you know, that end up putting fish on the end of your line. One of the things I tell people about fly fishing, one of the commonest mistakes I see newcomers to, to fly fishing um, get tied up with is the casting side of things and they become so fixated on the casting that the fishing in between is just something they do while they're stripping the fly back to make another cast and mm. they watch their bloody false casts in the air and they watch their beautiful loops unfolding and they think about the angle of their arm and their rod mm. between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock and all this stuff and they completely forget that the, that the end game is to get the fly into the water and then make it look like something that the fish will actually eat. And I'd rather be able to do that at 
45 feet, then place a fly at 90 feet and then just rip it back in and do the same thing again, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, it makes perfect sense. And something you spoke about earlier um, with, with whiting, for example, too, how you spoke about your, your effective, you know, water coverage was just the, the leader length of the fly, you know, that that mm. sort of, um, you know, that, that got me thinking too about how, you know, quite often people overlook that, you know, putting a fly line over the top of the fish, you know, they mightn't spook, but the fish is certainly aware of it. And, you know, it's probably mm. the equivalent of running 400-pound mono as a leader. Mm. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> quite heavily and that, that level of consciousness about the um, about the presentation sort of slips and slides from there. And, you know, pe people sometimes, you know, they in, in their um, – in their enthusiasm to get the fly further away from them, you know, probably sacrifice the fish close up, um, you know, which is sort of counterproductive again, as you just mm. mentioned. So, yeah, it's it's a it's an amazing um, it's an amazing game like that, and um, you know, people's uh, people's skills and, and background, you know, in fishing is, is is what they can bring to the table, um, you know, and gives them a head start thinking about what they're doing. Um, you know, it's, it's probably no. No um, surprise that the best uh, the best lure fishermen go on to become great fly fishermen as well. Mm. Well, yeah. they're good fishermen in general, really. At the end of the day, you know, like there's, yeah, yeah, there's that X factor that you, you can't teach as well. You know, that's for sure. I reckon, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess this all this all compounds to the reason you know we got you on there. Like we said right at the start, there, Starlo, is that you know you are a conduit between these two worlds really you're doing both people are noticing people are following you and noticing you for your for your skills and results with with lures but they're you know like i can see because you know my my career is fly fishing um i notice that people like a lot of people follow you and and look at your results for your fly fishing as well you know mm. it's um it's a it's a you're, you're in a very interesting and i would say unique somewhat unique position um you know, to, to see both sides of it, you know. So I guess, uh, you know, these um, philosophical outlooks as to the, what you think about it, I guess, would be of a lot of interest to a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's quite interesting to get your thoughts on that. It's um, Yeah, I hadn't sort of thought about that, but you're right. It probably is an interesting journey for, a lot, for, for people to watch my journey um, and, and to see me try and balance those things and, and decide, you know, what, what do I want to do? Do I want to catch... Do I want to catch a lot of fish in a short amount of time or do I want to catch a particular fish over a longer period of time and work at it? And there's so many different um, there's so many different rewards. It's, it's those different peaks we talked about before, the, the Everests and the K2s. There's, uh, there's a lot of different uh, peaks that you can reach in your fishing career. How, can I ask, um, uh, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be regretting to not ask this question, but how was... Um you know, I know about your your experience in media with 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 editor editor position editorial positions in magazines and and all that sort of stuff. But with the television experience, you know, introducing fly fishing in, in that area with, with 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 Rex Hunt, for example, and things like that. Because I remember seeing uh, one of the other scenes I remember is I'm, I I can't remember, I honestly can't remember if it was you or Rex, but uh, one of these guys catching a um, threadies up on um, uh, up in the God I can't remember the name of the Melville Island I think it was mm -hmm. on on a Gibbons Bard and Black. Um, mm -hmm. in the in the drains and stuff like that, and I remember looking at that, going, "Wow!" And and even recently, I've been fishing for threes on black flies because of because of that, and that's so long mm -hmm. ago, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, so how was it received, like by by 
because I'd imagine like there'd be a certain amount of number crunches there to be going. You now we we got to maximize our time on here, and it's all about return and blah blah blah. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, Fly always went over really well on telly, and, and I think Rex's show was probably a bit of an anomaly in that um, it, as many non as, as many fishers watched it as, as fishers. I think probably even more, you know, because he was such a character and a larger than life character and the fact that it was on basically by the end of the run it was on a prime time on a on a weeknight so a lot of people were watching it and we always got really good feedback uh on the fly segment some of the the only people you got negative feedback from were fishermen who were locked in there well i don't fly fish i'm a, I'm a lure fisherman i don't want to see that but your your average viewer actually really enjoyed the fly fishing stuff and they loved the aesthetics of it um and and we're always fascinated by the fact that because a lot of you know a lot of non-anglers or very occasional anglers, as soon as you say fly fishing, they think trout, mm. and so they were just amazed to find out that you could throw flies at, at anything up to and including billfish and, and sharks, you know, and tuna. Uh, so yeah, it, it actually it actually got pretty good feedback, and it's the same with what I was saying about YouTube now. Uh, whilst I think the the subset of fly fishermen as a uh, percentage of the larger fishing community is quite small, their their interest and their feedback um, and their fascination with with the, the sport is is uh, greater than than the other anglers. So I, I tend to get, like I said, I get a lot more feedback on fly stuff, and I get asked more often to do YouTube clips on fly fishing for brim than I do on lure fishing for brim. So maybe that's just go. a reflection of how much is out there for lure fishermen already and not as much for fly fishermen. But I just think, yeah, people just find it a bit fascinating and maybe that's what keeps us interested in it too. We just keep finding it a bit fascinating too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, hey, Steve, one final question, mate, I've got for you. Um, in your opinion, what's the best, the best thing we can do to, to keep fly fishing growing? Oh, wow, yeah. Um, I think just demystify it. Just take, just get rid of this. There's still a little bit of a, I mean, we got well away now from the, the leather elbow patches and the tweed jackets and the briar smoking, briar pipe smoking uh, trout fishermen, but <laughs> there's still a little bit of a level of um, inner sanctum, secret club, secret squirrel stuff about fly fishing and I think we we probably need to keep working at breaking that down and, and teaching people that it is just another when I try and introduce fly fly fishing in talks and things to, to people who don't have any understanding of it at all I say look it's just another form of lure fishing in which the lure is too light to be presented to, to be cast a reasonable distance using any other form of tackle and if you break it down to that they you see them suddenly go oh oh well that, that's what it's all about it's just a, a way to get a little a, a fly that's either too light or too wind resistant or too too bulky for its weight to get it out there any other way than casting it with fly gear and once you sort of break through that barrier and they just see it as another form of fishing but but a very appealing one and and often quite an effective one then then i think you um you can get people to make the switch across the fly fishing just get them to pick the pick the fly right up and have a go and um and not be daunted by it that's the big thing makes yeah, sense right. to me mm. yeah that's that's a really good point mm. well look um Stalo, i think we've um we've, we've taken up a lot of your time already mate you've been very generous for your time and really appreciate it but we might um 
We might put the drinks down at this point, eh? <laughs> Sounds good. I'm ready for one. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, mate, uh, I want to, again, I just want to say thanks for your time. And, uh, mate, I think uh, you're sharing um, your insights and your philosophical outlooks with us on, on regards to fly fishing and talking about your own experience has been quite good, mate. I think, um, yeah, I think people, including myself, get a lot out of that. I did. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. No worries. We'll chat soon, eh? Yeah, no worries. Mate, Starlow was a champion, wasn't he? What a fucking legend. Yep, yep, mate. Yeah, um, yeah it was a great show, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, look, um, no no real surprises with Steve's, Steve's uh, you know, passion for, for all, fine, all forms of angling um, was really evident. And um, I, really, I really enjoyed hearing him talk about, you know, those, those, those sort of things. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Look, there's so much we could have spoken to, to Steve about to sort of try and keep it on track with um, with one subject was the yeah. name of the game. But, um, you know, even we got off air just then, we started talking about other subjects we could have spoken about. But you now one day we'll get, in, get the guy back on. Um, I'd love to have him back on, you know, and, and talk talk about some, some other specific things. It, it, the temptation with somebody like Steve or... Or, or uh, you know any of those those sort of um, vastly experienced anglers is there is so much to talk about you can cover a lot of topics without going into much depth um, and you know we probably choose to go the other way just look at you know a couple of tight topics and look at them in depth mm. um, you know that's but yeah I uh, yeah it was really good having a chat to Steve about about fly fishing and um, the part it plays in his fishing life. You could do a six-hour show with Starlo if you really wanted. You got him to sit down and uh, and talk about, you know, the, just just fishing in Australia, you know, or um, or even uh, you know um, becoming a dugong whisperer or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. He he took that really well too, didn't he? Ah, <laughs> uh, mate, I'd say he would have um, copped a few jokes over that over the years. So I mean, Man. you know. Poor nah. bugger. He was just having Sorry. a swim, you know, and that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It was, uh, I remember looking at it as a kid going, what the hell, man? Like that, that yeah. thing was such a big animal and it was just being so gentle with him. And it's just, it was almost like he's trying to talk to the camera and totally swim. And that, and the dugong was just coming up going, come back in, come back in, come in, come for a swim, you know? That's what it seemed like. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole time, Starla's just, just like, uh, got that professional presenter. And welcome to the show, sort of thing. It's just in 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 the wild with a bloody um dugong. It's crazy. Where was it in Vanuatu? He said, yeah. Yeah, Vanuatu. I think. Yeah. 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 Are they manatees <laughs> there, or is they are they dugongs? I think they're. I think they're manatees in the US, so they'd be dugongs here. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Uh, dugongs here, yeah. I mean, there's a different. They've got a different tail shape and everything. Those manatees, they they're, they look like they're a a different animal. Yeah. Right. I'm not up on. Well, the dugongs have got like a, a dolphin-shaped tail, and uh, manatees have got like this round paddle, like a beaver tail, almost. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
I um I haven't told you I did my thesis on um on sea cows, did I? <laughs> you you've uh, you're full of surprises, Chris. I didn't see that one coming at all. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it wasn't in relation to anything more than um, substantiating the uh, the the mythology of mermaids. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a noble pursuit and one worth pursuing. I think so, mate. I don't. I think. I think. I think the subject has been dropped, and you know, I I just don't think that we're ready to let it go and dismiss them as being not real. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Mm. You know, we can't put mermaids in the same category as um, penguins and Eskimos, you know? They're real. <laughs> yeah. 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 Could be, mate. Could be. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that sort of evidence is uh, compelling, isn't it? So You can't. You can't. <clears throat> you're right. It's, it's compelling. You can't. You can't knock that sort of stuff. That's for sure. Yeah. But yeah, mate. Uh, you know, so we've, um, we've, we've done it. We've, we've finally got Starla on. It's been a long time coming. We've spoken about it, and it's been he's been one of those guests that we've wanted to finally manicure into the curation of the um, of the show's lineups, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and it's never been a good time for it, really. So you know, you and I, as you know, both decided for the to the listeners to know that we just decided let's let's do it. You know, um, we've got some pretty pretty um pretty good names on the podcast thus far, and Starla's right up there. And it's uh for me. It's very interesting to talk to someone who I used to watch on TV as a kid. Yeah, that is pretty bizarre, isn't it? Surreal in, in that moment. Um, it's similar to, for me at least, it's been similar to, to having, you know, uh, you know the Ant, the Mills on there, for example, Andy Mill. Um, the Mill family. You know, the Mill family, Dean Butler, Rod Harrison, Peter Morse, all guys that have, you know, had a, had a multimedia presence and done significant, um, you know, aspirational videos. Um, and Starlo's right up there for me too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree for the most part, for sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah, look, uh, you know, I think um, I think the only way up we could go from here is, I don't know, Josh Radloff or something. If he'd do it, you reckon he'd do it? What are you talking about? A video or coming on a pod? Just podcast. get, you know, like, um, up, like getting a, a more prestigious guest on. There's not too many people who've had their head modelled from a fly, right? That is a unique position of privilege, isn't it? Yeah. Most people have, have designed a fly, got to name it. Some people have named it after themselves, but no one has had a fly modelled after them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, like it's... Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, has that? I mean, we can't... It's a bit of a mouthful to call it Josh Radloff's head could call it a crazy josh or something yeah yeah that, that yeah. would be um or an anti-sex dungeon <laughs> dude <laughs> what i mean it's uh you know it's, it's just the name of a fly i just yeah yeah i'm sure i'm sure our most of our listeners are um over 18 yeah mm. i just worry about josh's feelings man you know he yeah <laughs> uh, uh, he's only got one head and you know, that's, that's 40, what and forty to, forty vision. <laughs> that's what he's got to live with, mate. Like he's got no choice. So. <laughs> <laughs> super, super interesting. Yeah. But anyway, all right. What do you say we, we wrap this puppy up and uh, been chewing your ear off for whatever? Yeah, a couple of hours, something like that. Time to fuck yeah. Off. Yeah. All right, man. 
See you next week, dude. Ta-da. Here's my story, sad but true, about a girl that I once knew. She broke my heart, I became unglued. It all started when she called me,
how I got where I am. But this ain't where it ends. The doctors said they cured me. I said goodbye to my crazy friends. I was smiling as I left that place. My life, my life had been renewed. The guard at the gate, he stamped my past. He said, Yo, later, dude. 